Welcome to today's episode of the Best You Can Be Leadership Podcast, where we offer bite-sized lessons and steps that you can implement as a part of your journey towards becoming the very best that you can be. This is your podcast host, Brigitte Bornstein, and just so you know, for planning purposes, we release a new episode the first and third Tuesday of every month with some amazing guests. Thank you so much for joining me for today's discussion. I hope you'll return my handshake to you. You can do that through becoming a part of this community on Instagram, my website, bestyoucanbe.com, or by subscribing and leaving helpful comments. Hey, you guys, we have the pleasure of having Stephanie Lanier with us today, and I want to just give you a little bit of her background. Stephanie Lanier is the leader of Lanier Property Group, which is an award-winning real estate team in Wilmington, North Carolina. She was named one of Wilmington's most intriguing people and also voted best real estate agent. She is the founder of the Inspiration Lab, which is a membership community that provides teaching, tools, and connection for working women, and I can vouch for it being a phenomenal group. Stephanie is particularly passionate about empowering women who want to grow their own real estate businesses and then also those who want to start their own small business. And lastly, as a parent to a child with special needs, Stephanie has made a study out of work-life rhythm and self-care, and she really strives to help others foster that work-life integration that so many of us crave. So I am super excited for you to be able to hear from her today, and I know that your takeaways will be just as eye-opening as mine. Well, hello, Stephanie. Welcome to the Best You Can Be Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to be here. I love talking about leadership. Love you. I think this can be really fun. Me too. I was wondering if I could just ask you to share a little bit about your family and just sort of introduce them to us. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Andrew is my husband. We met on a blind date. It was like back when you could have blind dates. Um, we I opened the door when he came to pick me up at my house and I was like, oh, he's handsome. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was really fun. And it was, we were set up by mutual friends. So it wasn't like a total, I mean, it was a blind date, but not a like scary blind date, if you know what I mean. And so, yeah, we were engaged after three months and married six months later. So it was super fast. And for people who know me, that's always a surprise because I'm very type A. And, um, I was like, I will date someone in every season. And I had all these like things and, oh man, when you know, you know, and it, um, it worked out really well. And so we were married for about four years before we had our son, Oliver. Oliver is such a sweet boy. He'll be 12 pretty soon. And he was diagnosed at 19 months with a rare genetic disorder called tuberous sclerosis complex, and it causes epilepsy. So seizures are a thing that we deal with frequently. It also causes autism um, and a lot of developmental delays and that sort of thing. So, you know, for the first 19 months of his life, I was a stay-at-home mom. I thought I would have more kids. I really envisioned that as my life. I had my minivan ready for, you know, my family of five. That's sort of uh, what I had dreamed up in my head. And everything really changed. And also, my husband was diagnosed with tuberous sclerosis as well. So it's genetic, which wow. not only changed the picture of how we would think about having more children, but also what would that mean for Andrew. So Andrew has a very mild expression of tuberous sclerosis and Oliver has a pretty severe expression. And so that sort of changed my whole life and, and, and a big pivot. I had never really spent time in the special needs community, had never known anyone personally who was medically fragile um, and truly hadn't been around autism very much. So all of it was really new for me. And my background was as a social worker. So I have a master's degree in social work. So I had some professional experience, but like personal 
everything was just new for me. It was a hard, a very hard season. We also were super poor because uh, Oliver was born in um, 2008 and then he was diagnosed in 2010. And so the film industry was in a tough spot in North Carolina, which my husband works in. And at the time he worked in real estate as well. And it also was in a really tough spot. So I was like the coupon mom who had a binder full of coupons. And like, if you drop it, they go so like I would be in Harris Teeter just like trying to have my coupons, dealing with Oliver, trying to make sure he wasn't like licking the, you know, the shopping cart. And it was just a hard, difficult time in our life. And I felt pretty, pretty lost. And then obviously over time, all the stuff you explained, almost all of that, all of it, actually, every bit of it came from this, this diagnosis and this change in my life, this pivot, this sort of plot twist I would have not chosen. Obviously, nobody would choose for their kid to be sick, but it has sort of shaped everything in my life. And I think so many of the people who listen to your podcast and you too, hardship and these unexpected things that happen to us shape our path. And yeah, it's been a fun and wild ride. And I would change it for Oliver. I wouldn't change it for me because the amount of sort of character and grit and resilience and also perspective that I have, like you just, Mm. you can't buy that. What a rarity that you, that you have that perspective. I mean, most, most people, I don't think really get to that point and then you sort of stay in that rut. What about I mean, so you interact with people a lot on the day-to-day in real estate, in the inspiration lab, uh, and on a very personal level. How do you consistently make those that you're interacting with feel important, especially for you on those bad days? Because I feel like it would be so easy to take the, you know, the mundane things that people complain about that pale in comparison to, you know, maybe what you just had to leave at home or something right before meeting with someone. How do you separate those two things and still make someone feel important? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think, well, a few different things. I often, in my mind, envision pulling down like a storage, you know, like, um, you know, a storage center, you know, where they're like mm-hmm. different ways and you pull them down like a garage door. Yeah. I often when I, the garage door in my house is pulling down, I pull that down on my personal life, like my mom life, my that sort of thing. I'm assuming Oliver's okay that day. We have good childcare. If Andrew's on call or if I'm on call, we generally pick a parent that's kind of like the first call. But kind of when I know things are in an okay place, I try to mentally pull down that garage door and I roll up professional stuff. And so I crank up the music. I get my head straight. I mean, like I'm going to work like any professional does. I had a really fairly traumatic childhood and I learned how to compartmentalize then. And so sometimes people say like men have waffle brains and women have spaghetti brains. I don't think that's fair men, women. I think it's fair personality wise. So I'm a pretty good Mm -hmm. waffle brain. Like I can kind of keep things in boxes when things are really hard with Oliver, I can't. And that's how I know I need more self-care. Cause like the only way I know how to explain it's like the garage door starts rolling up without me lifting it. And so it's just kind of like coming up. I'm like trying to slap it down. Like, okay, wait, I'll call the nurse after this or I'll do whatever. So the garage door things is like really helpful for me. And actually I do back out of my garage every morning. So it helps me kind of roll up mm-hmm. and down. Visuals are helpful. When I was a social worker, there was a stoplight that when I was, when I was at the stoplight, I tried to leave work at work. And if I couldn't, I would generally like go around the block a few more times to see if I could sort of get the transitions. And a book that we read, I think we read an inspirational lab, but I don't know if you've read it called High Performance Habits, talks a lot about transitions and transitions are just really critical for anybody, especially if you're going to be juggling a lot of stress. It's that sort of transitioning your mind, your body, your spirit. And sometimes things are too stressful. You just can't like certain things are going to stay in your brain 
brain. Um, you wanna pay attention to those things because your body's probably saying like, this is really important. But for the most part, that sort of learning to compartmentalize or transition smoothly is, is I think kind of one of the secrets. But how do I make people feel important? So that's part of it. So if I'm not constantly thinking like, oh my gosh, is Oliver okay? Is Oliver okay? Like you can't be present with someone else in that place. Um, we do this little thing called Deets on Peeps, which is a free thing from the Inspiration Lab. I'll give it to you so you can share it with your listeners. Thank um, you. Yeah, I have everyone fill that out. So the workers that work in our home with Oliver, everyone at our office, um, anybody who, who I have in my world, and it has everything from like their favorite candy bar to their favorite flower to their coffee order. And I keep these things in a spreadsheet. So like if I know Lisa Barrett, who's my assistant and our membership manager and basically runs my whole life, is having a hard day, I would look up and be like, oh, she loves Reese's Pieces. So I'll just grab it when I'm at the store or knowing like her favorite TV shows. So I consider a funny GIF, like all the little things people, people feel loved in the details, not mm. in the amount of money. It's in the details, right? So it's like, if you brought me a tiny pumpkin, that matters because you know, I like pumpkins, right? So it's like this inside thing. Lisa loves peanut butter. She couldn't have it when she was pregnant, but I got her two birthday cakes recently. She likes very specific cakes. But there was one that was peanut butter and regular. So I was like, let's just get two cakes, right? Like that sort of quote unquote extravagance makes people feel so loved. Like if you can't, why not get somebody two birthday cards or six balloons? Like, you know, so I think knowing someone well, loving them in the details is, is really key. And I think on a good day or a bad day, I'm just naturally, I feel like I can say this with confidence and humility. I'm good at this. Like I thought this was normal. And my husband is always like, babe, this is not normal. Like you have a gift and I love to make people feel special. So, I mean, for birthdays, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, love people in the way they want to be loved. So I think that's really fun. It's something I spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, and so I could always do better. Like nobody ever says like, my boss appreciates me too much. I get too many gifts at work. Like stop this encouragement. Like you can basically not overdo this, but it is something that I try to build a rhythm into my life and I have systems and I'm happy to tell you how I try to figure that out. Um, Cause I do have a lot of people in the world. And so I think it's just really fun. It's like a hobby for me to love people well and to celebrate them. And I think birthdays are especially important, especially again, so many adults, like you can kind of just come and go. Don't let that happen. If you love someone <sighs> on my bad days, I'm super type A. So I get, I get overwhelmed. So it can be hard for me to sort of like slow down and be gracious. And Lisa's really type A too, but we get each other and she'll just say like, I don't understand what you're saying. And I'll say it again. She's like, that still makes no sense to me. I'm like, <laughs> okay, I'll try again. But we just keep working through it, you know? Um, and so there's really like no conflict in our work. I mean, I don't know. It's just not a place of conflict. I don't want to work this many hours a week in a place with conflict. Like my personal life is challenging enough with Oliver. Why would I want to create a work environment with any of that stuff. It's just unnecessary. Like in your personal life, you can't control seizures with your child, but you certainly control workplace dynamics. So keep it positive, give people breaks, be supportive. And when you are, you can catch a bad attitude, like a cold. We tell people like work from home if you have a bad attitude, because it really is contagious. You know, you spill your coffee cup and you feel that really outsized reaction emotionally. That's the wake up call of like, whoop, okay, we're in a weird space right now. And so you have to then take action to make sure that other people don't have to deal with like your, your kind of bad attitude and they don't catch it, especially as a leader, this will just permeate an organization, you know? And so I think that that's really important. We, I mean, we talk about that a lot, you know, like if you can't pull this together, then work from home. 
And so as much in the inspirational lab as we talk about being authentic, you can certainly say to your boss, hey, I need to have a conversation with you. But if you're totally falling apart, especially in my workplace where all the women are super intuitive, everyone's going to ask you like, hey, what's going on? Are you okay? And if you need support, that's okay. But really, if it's something you just kind of need some time to process and stuff has been hard for you, then work from home. Do, do your thing. Does that make sense? Like there's a sadness yeah. that's appropriate to get attention for in the workplace. And there's a sadness that becomes um, toxic and your boss starts thinking, this person needs therapy, right? And there's some in between there that you have to walk carefully. And we have a team right now that's just really emotionally stable and has a lot of support at home and a lot of wonderful friends. And I think has been through a lot of hard personal stuff. Like when I hire, I want to see personal resilience. Like I'm looking for people who've been through hard things because they tend to not, especially let real estate stuff, get them off course, Mm -hmm. you know? So, so important to remember that because sometimes I think we just get this inflated sense of self or a project or whatever. And it's like, you know, for the most part, most of us are doing things that aren't quite that important. Now, if there are people in your audience doing like legitimately, you know, life-saving or, you know, uh, all kinds of like military operations where they're responsible for a lot of people, like that's different. And I'm not totally sure how you would think through that, but I feel like for the average person listening, most of our work matters, but sometimes Mm -hmm. not as much as we let it matter. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Knowing when to pull back, oftentimes I think it's so counterintuitive, but it has such a positive result, I guess. And I could ask you so many questions from what you just shared, but I I, want to ask, do you have in in place some specific in your routine, in your habits, in your thinking, I think the answer is yes, that help you show up for all of these things? Because you kind of just talked about your team and yes, you gave the garage door example, but like what, what do you have in place to make sure that you're able to show up while still dealing with like the unpredictable nature of home and caring for Oliver and everything else? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, one of the ideas sort of, as we were talking about is like in your head, you're trying to learn how to bend before you break. Right. So you, you, I don't know when you're going to break, but you probably have an idea when you'll break and it's actually, you can take it way further than you probably should. I'll just say that. Like, I I do feel like there are times where I'm like, I'm going to break and lo and behold, I do not. And I'm like, well, whoa. I mean, I've found the fringes of my sanity and apparently it's further out than I thought. Right. But your job as, as a leader and as a person with people counting on you, whether that's little people, big people, whatever, people who love and care for you is to figure that out. The way, like some specific ways for me, I mean, I drink a ton of water. I know this sounds so dumb, but like in America, why are you dehydrated? This just makes zero sense. Like dehydration is the easiest, no brainer. I'm not saying you need to get a trainer. You never have to run a triathlon, just drink more water. It's crazy. It fixes so many things. Um, And it took me until I was like 35 to get water right. Then I got sleep right. So sleep was my like next kind of obsession. And it still sort of is because there's so much to know about sleep and it's fascinating. Sleep modulates your behavior and your emotions too. So that's part of it. Like if you are sleep deprived, you will not do your best work. And you also can be a lot, you know, you just don't have that. It's harder to be gracious with people, right? Because you're just kind of already at the fringes. And then I talk to my therapist sometimes every week, sometimes I'll go six months without talking to her, but I absolutely think mental health is important. And it's important, especially as a leader to have 50 minutes where you get to yak about yourself. You know, I mean, most of what you're doing as a leader is checking on other people, following up, listening to them. Um, and there needs to be a safe place where you can share. And I mean, this person legally is obligated to keep that confidential. And so I also think more high profile you become, sometimes the scarier it is to be vulnerable with people because you're not really sometimes you're not sure like what they may or may not share. And so if there are things that are really personal and private, you're trying to work through, that's why therapy 
is so wonderful. And now with telemedicine and phone calls and Zoom, there's just, um, apart from the financial impact, if, if that's an issue for you, but if you have good health insurance or you have a way to do a $10 copay, I mean, that's my copay is $10. Like, it's, it's just a no brainer to me. Yeah. Um, and I try to take my calls with Snowy, who's my therapist at the beach when I can, like to walk on the beach, even if it's me taking the hour and driving in my car and I'm only on the beach like for 20 minutes, but just because I'm not going to take the therapy call when I'm in the office. I mean, generally speaking, just because I want to be in my car um, mm -hmm. or someplace private. And so that's been really helpful for me. So all those like kind of rhythm things are, are just really have been key for me and sleep may not be the thing for you. Like for my husband, he, he needs sleep too. We, our whole house needs sleep, but he exercise is key. Like I swear exercise is so critical for him. Like he's a different person when he's not exercising. So again, a lot of that self-awareness, like what are the things that you need? Um, and if you're an introvert, how much and an extrovert too, but especially for introverts, how much time do you need alone? So I'm an extrovert and I don't need a whole lot of time alone, but I still make sure that I get that minimum. If you need a lot of time alone, then you're going to sometimes be figuring out, okay, are you going to give up sleep? Like, how are you going to figure this out if you have a very public facing um, job? So, so some of it too is understanding how you rest and refuel and how much, like how much downtime do you need? I have agents in my office who need a lot more downtime. They get sick easier than I do. Um, they just have like more, you know, immune system issues. And a lot of that's physical. It's nothing they can control, but they don't go at the pace I go and I don't want them to. And every once in a while they're like, well, you have so many listings. I'm like, but remember you shouldn't because this doesn't work with your life and with what you have set up and with your just physical biology and what your goals are it's just so easy to get our goals like look at someone else's goals and, and try to start taking those on without understanding the implications, you know? Yeah. So I think that's What's that one saying about like a com comparison is the robber of like the all joy, joy. Or That's what it is. Yeah. The thief of joy. Yeah. Yeah. But absolutely. It's also, comparison is like a tyrant. It, it just also, it's, it's not relevant. I, I just think comparing is not all that relevant except for like, if you're picking out a peach at the store, right? I mean, pick the best peach. That's fine. <laughs> the Olympics fine. Be let's have a gold medal winner. But like, if you're trying to compare a career, how do you even compare that? A lot of my friends are kind of, I think like on I-40, you know, their kids are like doing soccer or playing tennis or whatever, you know, they're kind of trying to figure out what their kids are good at. They're, they're doing homework and all these other things. I mean, Andrew and I are like on a back road, you know, there are no signs. We don't know if we're going fast or slow. We don't really have a point of reference. We say this, like every once in a while we try to build like a pit stop for somebody because we think if somebody else is going to come after us, maybe that would be helpful. But like, we're not comparing to, because we are just legitimately on this very different path. I mean, we are still watching Elmo and Oliver's 12, right? So it's like, mm -hmm. we're doing mm -hmm. other things. And in some ways there's such freedom in that. Like I would be so, so challenged by being on the I-40 with everyone else. And I just feel like God was like, hey, take the back road and have at it. So off we go, you know, we're just kind of doing our own thing. And there's no really anyone to call and say, what should we do? Because our situation is so unique. I mean, nobody has the answer, you know? That's a really good imagery that you just used to describe that. That made me uh, think of that, that one time I quoted you because I loved this so much. You said that we're all in the same ocean, but not in the same boat. I, I, I wanted to ask just kind of a follow-up 
what have you learned about managing your emotions to stay centered enough to respond well in the moment without becoming flustered? So I think you have a lot of really good things set up to keep yourself from getting to that point, but I'm sure that you just like the rest of us occasionally slip up and then you get to that point of being flustered. But what do you do in that moment to cool the jets a little bit? Yeah. I mean, so much of it is about prevention. So you don't even have to think about that, but there have Mm -hmm. definitely been like, I can think about, I've had two cold calls with other realtors the past two years where I got like really emotional and it's because I felt attacked. Like my own integrity was being attacked um, and my ethics. And that Mm -hmm. just was an immediate gut reaction. I mean, I didn't see it coming and I was like, Whoa, my voice was shaky. My I could feel my body like fight or flighting it. And I think it's because underlying there was a lot of stress, there was a lot of tension in real estate. Sometimes there are like people threaten lawsuits. I mean, it can get really, really tense. And so I think for me, part of it is just feeling, oh, like paying attention to my body, being like, wow, this is upsetting me more than I'm logically processing. And then trying to get off the phone to call them back. I mean, sort of like stop the conversation so I can sort of figure out like, hey, what is upsetting me about that? Or what happened there? How do I want to do it? So I think that's part of it. I think in marriage, which is probably the place where this happens the most, right? Because you're much more likely to just spout something dumb off, get triggered by somebody who loves you, right? And for the most part, and this isn't fair, but this is how we do it. We have workers at our house almost all the time with Oliver. So I'm not about to, in front of a college girl, say something like disrespectful or rude or mean or or even Andrea does not like to be teased, even like teasing to Andrea because like that's just weird, right? Mm-hmm. And so often when I'm annoyed, having another person there, I'm sort of like, it's not worth, who cares? Do you know what I mean? It's like, this is not worth bringing up. And then I often think after the person leaves, if I feel like bringing it up, I do. Most of the time it's not important. I mean, again, because we have a child who's got like a life-threatening illness, I'm like, yeah, I'm annoyed that like he brings Pop-Tart wrappers and Dorito bags and stuff into the bedroom. I'm like, what is happening over here? Like I go to the <laughs> out of the bed and I'm like, oh my God. But you're like, really? Like, I love this man. I don't want to chase him around about his Dorito bag. Like, I'm just not interested in that. Like, that's not a love affair to me. That's like somebody being somebody's mom. Often I'm just sort of thinking through that. I also know that like, you can just start a conversation thinking it's going to be about Doritos and it just rips off a Band-Aid. And like, do you have two hours for that? No, generally I don't. Cause I'm like, I want to go to sleep. And I think bringing up anything highly emotional at bedtime is such a bad idea. We've all been there. You don't sleep well. It just, and nobody's good emotionally. Nobody's like, oh, I feel like really like I'm well-fed. I'm well-rested. Now let's talk about hard stuff. Um, so I think that that's, that's something that we've learned too. Um, Cause sometimes even at night we'll think about like, hey, did you deposit that check? And then it's like, oh, did, what do we decide about this bill or whatever? And it's like finances, frankly, have not been a big issue for us in the past few years. I feel like we found a really good place for that, but it still always is a potential trigger, you know, or like Mm -hmm. the in-laws are coming over, right? Anything that is just has any possible undercurrent, you shouldn't talk about it before bed. Like just wait, you know, like there are plenty of hours in the day. So I think for me, some of it's timing. Um, But in the moment, if I can, I'm pretty good at stopping myself. Uh, of just stepping back from it. And then this is a trick from when I was a kid is I try to get my mind off of it as fast as possible. Mm. So if I can like take a deep dive into Instagram and just get lost in some stories or a magazine or like, but I have to focus hard. If I can get my brain completely moved off the thing I'm upset about, get my body to then calm down and then come back to the thing, it's much better. And often I'm not as concerned about it. Sometimes though, I'm still upset about it. And then it's a much bigger conversation of like, is it appropriate to call this person back right now? Am I under control kind of thing? 
Yeah. But for the most part, I feel like I have pretty good emotional control. There are times though, sometimes when Andrew and I will be talking about something, it'll just like trigger something. And I'm like, whoa, we just stepped on a landmine. I didn't even know this was a landmine. We were talking to Mm -hmm. our counselor, Snowy, um, who we see sometimes together. um, And I mostly see apart, but she knows both of us and has seen us on and off since Oliver was diagnosed. And um, we were talking about something like a month ago. And man, like Andrew said something and I just was like immediately started crying. And he was like, whoa. And I was like, whoa, I don't know what's happening. (laughs) Um, and so there are going to be times you surprise yourself and that's okay. Like you're a human being. And there are sometimes wounds that are really deep or old until somebody touches it. You don't really know it's there because it's not something that you're thinking about all the time. And really that the whole, the whole thing from that was about failure. It just was me feeling like a failure, which I wasn't a failure and no one said I was a failure, but in my head I had internalized this thing and it was about not working out because I don't work out sorry. I'm just going to admit it. I know I'm supposed to, I like to go for walks, but I'm not doing like weight bearing working out. Right. Which you do to be a complete Mm -hmm. healthy person, not a bad idea. Right. But somehow I, it just stepped on some kind of like thing of like, Oh, you're, you're the self-care person, but like, you can't lift weights. Like I can, but who wants to do that? I know you, some some (laughs) of you are like, I can't wait to lift a barbell, but like, that's the last thing in the world I ever have thought that I want. I never wake up in the morning and be like, I want to lift weights like ever in the history of my life. And that's okay. It is okay, but it's so interesting. Like I know that intellectually, but it touched some kind of like, Mm. oh, you have your life together, but this one thing is not right, which literally no one's ever said to me, but I've I've sort of heard it and I've sort of repeated (laughs) it to myself. And it's sort of what I did. I don't know if you've heard me talk about, I used to wake up at 5 a.m. and go work out because all these people I admired who wrote books and were leaders, they all did that. And that's such a bad idea for my body. I was the lamest working out person because I barely had my coffee. I had bad breath. I was like, Ooh, I don't have a lot of energy. Like I don't wake up with a ton of energy. And I did this for years. And I think it made me gain weight because I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't sweating very much and I was hating life, but I was like, but all the best, cool, awesome people do this. Mm. And what a, how ridiculous. It's just us back to comparison being the, <laughs> the thief of our joy. Of joy. Just like a yeah. big old tyrant, you know? And I just remember at some point I was like, what would my life be like if I focused on sleep? And when I focus on sleep, my life got so much better. And it's like sleep, in my opinion, I would say, if you got to pick sleep or working out, you always pick sleep. Sleep is way more foundational than you get in a sweat in. I mean, but it's weird in our culture, especially with like weight and and, and a lot of different things where I feel like people like, I have to work out. It's like, no, if you had slept another hour and gotten some deep sleep, what that would have done for you biologically would have been way more Mm -hmm. powerful. So it all, I think it all just comes down to you just developed an incredibly high level of self-awareness. I I really think that's what it is because you can just very easily get veered off track like, oh, well, they're doing this, doing this. But I I wanted to just kind of pause and and go back a little bit to your marriage. How, How many years have you and your husband been married? I feel so old, 16 years. I really was a child bride, sort of, kind of. I was 22, but that feels like, to me now, like, so young. Yeah, it's really funny, because I was 22, too, <laughs> when I got married. Yeah, yeah, so, um, yeah, 16, 16 years. We celebrated That's last amazing. Friday. Yeah. Congratulations. How has being spread so thin really challenged your marriage? Uh, just because I... I Every I'm way. assuming that it has. Yeah. What what advice do you have for married couples who are dealing with any number of stressors related to having children either with or without special needs? Because I know that, of course, you know, the vast majority of your, your friend circle isn't in the right. same boat as you. But what advice do you have? Um, 
I think you sort of, so a few different things, like it's helpful for you as a couple to remain your, to have, like you have to keep having your own stuff apart from parenthood. This is true if you have healthy kids or special needs kids or whatever, because so often the only thing you begin to have in common is Johnny's baseball team and cooking the gluten-free meals that some one of your children needs. And like, like modern American parenting will swallow your entire, like, personhood if you aren't careful mm. i mean you know it's the trophy culture right it's the yeah. every kid's super special and we have to make sure they have great self-esteem and like some of my friends are like my kid is having a hard time with covid i'm like they are fine your kid can wear a mask like a kindergartner's like they put on their shoes their underwear and their mask they're not even stressed about it you are making this something weird like a five-year-old is so adaptive it's crazy kids adapt so well i think parents don't adapt as well and we often get our own identity wrapped up in our kids and so that's how you end up with this sort of like little johnny's got to play violin and be great at baseball and all this stuff and like maybe he likes to write poetry like let let the boy sit in a tree like let's just let mm -hmm. people be who they're going to be and i can say this kind of a little bit bluntly because i have a kid with special needs who i can literally project none of my own personal dreams onto there's nothing that I envision in my head for Oliver long-term to accomplish that's, that's going to be possible for his life. He's still a wonderful, joyful kid who's opened my eyes up to all kinds of amazing things, but it's not like I'm envisioning, like, I can't drop him off at college. I can't think about who will he marry. I can't think about the career he'll have. I can't think about, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? I have to be in the moment with him and it's, it's been freeing, honestly. So all that to say in your marriage, you have to have your own things, which when you're married before kids, you generally do. Like you love music or you cook together. All the things you did when you were dating that make you click, but you can lose all this stuff really, really easily. And so having your own things, I think is, is really key. And a lot of my friends have like learned hobbies like somebody's really good at golf or tennis or fishing and somebody in the couple has to say, okay, I'll learn this thing so we can do it together. Rarely yeah. do you have two people who love to go deep sea fishing or two people who are both great at golf. But mm -hmm. because as a couple, they've said, Hey, this is something that brings you so much joy. And I'm, I'm going to humble myself and be a beginner so we can share in this together. That's really helpful and important. And I think that can bring you together and especially like any kind of outdoor sort of health activities that kind of get both benefits is, is really nice too. If that's sort of one of the things you do together, gardening, fill in the blank, a nonprofit, a charity. Um, you have to let each other be sad at different times. You don't want to be sad at the same time. You think when things are, I would think early on with Oliver's illness, I was like, why is Andrew not more sad? Like I'm distraught. Well, he processes longer than I do. So he, at his grief over a diagnosis or a milestone that was missed came so much later than mine. We've been sad at the same time once or twice, and that's horrible, right? Because nobody can pull the other person up. Mm -hmm. There's this balance in a, in, a, in a great couple that you're hoping that somebody else is kind of strong when the other is weak. But sometimes when you're in a weak spot, you can almost be angry. Like, how is this person doing okay with this? Well, it's a gift that, that you're sort of on different paces. And also people grieve differently. Like sadness affects people very differently and understanding that and allowing for it to sort of, sort of having the self-awareness but the tenderness to respond to the person you love and however they need to be responded to. Like sure. for me, when I'm in a hard spot, um, not so much with Oliver, but like at work, I respond well to like coaching, like pull it together. You can do better than this. Like go for it, you know? And Andrew responds much better to encouragement. Like I see you and you're doing a great job and hang in there. Like for me, that's not nearly as motivating as that almost like kind of aggressive in your face thing, but that shuts him down. Right. So knowing mm -hmm. how to love someone through and encourage them is really key. And often how you would want it done is not how somebody else would want it done. Um, 
I, I would say no mind reading. Don't expect the person to read your, that's ridiculous. People are always like, you know, I tell them like, I tell Andrew what I want him to purchase for me for a birthday or whatever. My love language is gifts. So that's actually a really hard love language to understand. I feel so bad for the non-gift givers because it's the hardest one. Because again, it's like not, it's not about the stuff. It's about like the meaning, right? It's yeah. infusing something with meaning that makes it just like so special. But I see meaning in every gift I get people. Do you know what I mean? Like if there's an oyster, yeah. it's not just an oyster. It's no grit, no pearl. It's like, hey, perseverance. Like I see this in you. And when you wear this pearl necklace or you see this oyster, this is what I want it to say to you. So it's like a secret language sort of. So kind of like, I think that that's important, but you can't expect someone to read your mind. Like if you feel sad, you don't have to like do all these, like just say like, I'm feeling really sad. It's just strange how often adults don't use their words either. Like just saying how you're feeling um, and not expecting something from your partner that you don't expect from anyone else in, in your world. You don't expect the people you work with to read your mind. You don't expect your family, your friends. I mean, you know, so I think that's important. And then I think then just to, when you need to be in therapy, you got to do it sooner rather than later. So as a therapist myself, and as a person who's been in marriage counseling, you can't show up for a 50 minute session and undo a decade of contempt and bitterness and dysfunction. It's absurd to think that you can. Yeah. So many people do. They let it go so far that it's sort of like, this is our last ditch effort. That rarely works. Mm -hmm. You're feeling the, the, the communication patterns being a problem when there's been some betrayal or loss or, or something that feels like beyond the scope of what the two of you can handle. This is when you reach out often because both partners are going to click with the first person you go to. I mean, it's a very kind of intimate thing, right? And especially I find for a lot of my friends who are married, their husbands have never been in therapy. A lot of the women have been in therapy many times. So they're comfortable with this idea. But not only are you going to marriage counseling, which to some people feels like signaling something's wrong. To me, I'm like, this is like changing the oil. This is like maintenance, right? We're trying to avoid yeah. the something is wrong phase. But I think that's important. You've got to ask for help. And a lot of churches have free counseling programs or support in that way. There are a lot of different places where you can get older couples to potentially mentor you. Like, I think there are ways that you can get help and support. But for me, when Snowy calls me out and she's like, that's ridiculous that you're doing that. Do you see how hurtful that is to Andrew? And I'm just like, and she'll say, can you say that out loud again? And I'll say it. And she's like, do you hear that? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds bad. And she's like, yeah, mm -hmm. like allowing again, being teachable. Cause that's what, I mean, marriage counseling is not about getting someone on your side. It's about saying like, Hey, look at us. Cause we love each other and respect each other enough to value this. And I need some correction. I mean, frankly, that's a lot of what marriage counseling is. It's a little bit of a yeah. person like, Oh, you can be harsh. You know, so you need to be teachable. And I think it really just boils down to being committed. Because if you're committed to that other person, then you're going to want to learn their love language and you're going to want to communicate in that way. That's, that's really helpful. I was wondering if I could also just ask you um, to introduce us to the Inspiration Lab. Tell us about it. Tell us what you love the most. Oh, what I love the most. Hmm, I've never been asked that. Um, the Inspiration Lab is something I started for women, for working women. Um, and it started as a luncheon series. I wanted to be able to talk about personal and professional like you and I are doing right now. We're just flipping between the two, right? In a setting where we could talk about having children or being married or fertility issues or, you know, that time of the month, like all the things that ha affect women every day. Like this isn't like some part of our life that's on the side. I mean, also plenty of our, our members are going to go through menopause, like these really drastic changes that women are dealing with that I felt like we're never part of the professional conversation, but really should be, especially when you talk about like fertility, which is a time sensitive issue that coincides with marriage and career. And mm -hmm. we've been told we can have it all. And then it turns out some people 
biologically aren't able to make that happen. Like, can we call BS and come together and talk about the truth about how this happens? Or if you offer up your career, what really will happen? Like, yes, you can, but how does that work? And, and a lot of our members have gone through divorces and they didn't foresee that. And how did they kind of work through it? So I just want to talk about all of that, which women talk about at conferences in the lobby but not on the Mm -hmm. stage. And I just thought, what if we just talked about this on the stage? Because this actually would probably help people more. And so we started with luncheons and then it turned into a paid membership community a little bit by accident, just because we kept selling out events and I didn't know who our audience was exactly. Um, And my closest friends were like, I I, like, can you get me in? And I was like, we can't, like, there's not a chair for your booty to go into. Like we we can't Mm -hmm. fit this building. We started the membership community and it's grown from there. So, I mean, I would say it, I always sort of say this, it was a passion project that grew into a side hustle that's now a kind of full-blown its own business. And it just evolved. In real estate from the beginning, I had an idea of where I wanted to go because of course there are lots of real estate uh, teams out there and I kind of knew what we needed to, to bring in financially. I knew the lifestyle I wanted. But the inspiration lab, I had no map. I didn't know anybody who had anything like this. So I, I was way more back roads on that. And I would say I was much more like on the highway with real estate, like, cause there is an I-40 for real estate. So I'm on it and I'm, and I'm definitely on the I-40 of real estate. Cause I'm looking around like, okay, they have a team and they're more productive than we are. Or I love the way they have their system set up because there's similarities enough, but the inspiration lab is just a back. I mean, we're just kind of figuring it out. And a lot of times we think we're going to do something and like people show up like more than we thought, or nobody shows up. Like I have had at least two or three things online where it's me just like me and you're not even there. And I'm just like, that's humbling. That is a teachable moment. We will pivot off of this topic, right? Cause it could be the time. It could be the marketing. It could be nobody got the zoom link, right? Whatever. But because it's a back road sort of situation, I'm like, okay, we'll just keep going. Like it doesn't, I'm not taking it personally. And I do that's think that's super important. encouraging. If you're doing something new, you cannot take anything personally. I mean, there are times I think we could run the same event three different times and the time of day alone would get us 50% more participation. You know, sometimes things just get lost. Like if a lot's going on in the world, you might put something out there that's great, but people aren't thinking about it, right? So I think being realistic and a little bit more objective than sometimes we are, especially when we're doing anything artistic or personal, you feel real fragile and vulnerable. Like here world, here's this thing. And then the world's like, doesn't even see it. And you're like, I'm going to pull it back, you know? Um, And I think that that can be a real temptation versus just knowing like, hey, Sometimes it's timing. I mean, sometimes what you put out there wasn't good, but generally it's, it's not that generally it's the timing, the approach, whatever's going on in other people's, other people's worlds, you know? Yeah, that's really good. Well, the inspiration lab is, I mean, like I said, in the very beginning, it is like none other. I am going to be linking more information for that. So for everybody listening, they can kind of check that out, check out the blog, so just a, a couple like quick, easy questions just to, to wrap it up. I was wondering what is your ideal way to start and finish each day, like in a perfect world? Yeah, I love that question. I haven't thought about it too much, but I would say um, starting the day would just be with Oliver's sleep. So he doesn't wake up at the same time every day. So there's no real way I can know I have the morning to myself. But if he's asleep and I make myself a cup of coffee and I sit in the front room, I turn on all my pumpkins. I have a lot of pumpkins that like have battery powered lights in them. I light myself a fall candle and I just do. So there's this book I've been doing the artist way. It's fantastic. If you're having any trouble with creativity, you have to get this book. It's life changing. It's so good. And I'm on week, I don't know, six of it. And a lot of it is like prompts, but the idea is that you do morning pages. So you write three full pages every morning and it can just 
be, I don't know what to write. I'm going to keep writing. Like you just keep going. And generally around a page and a half, something decent comes out and you're like, whoa, I didn't know that was in there. So that would be a perfect morning for me just to have like 30 minutes where my phone's not ringing. No one needs me. And I can sort of let my brain wake up and breathe a little bit. And then at night, it's just always like snuggling with Andrew. I love to go to bed early. It's like my favorite thing. And I feel like, you know, when we kind of get in the snuggle position, I'm always like, this is the best. Like, I feel so lucky. I mean, I feel like there's so many things you can't buy this being one of them. Like the physical mm -hmm. closeness is I have so many friends who are single right now, just saying during the pandemic in particular, like to be able to be together. And then we've been watching the Netflix show away. I don't, I mean, have you heard about this? It's I haven't. No. You would like it. It's about, you know, Hillary Swank is, I think that's her. I think that's who it is. Um, now I'm like second guessing myself. But uh, anyway, she is, you know, an astronaut and she's away and it's just showing them and like as a couple not being able to physically be, and she's like going to Mars. So it's taking three years or something. But every mm -hmm. time we watch that and then I'm just like snuggling in bed, I'm like, this is so great. Like, I love my fluffy sheets. I don't need a bigger bed. I like the person in the bed with, with me. I mostly like myself as I go to sleep. I just think it's so great. So that's really... That's really it. The nights are so, and the mornings are so dominated by whatever's happening medically with Oliver that it's the morning evening ritual thing. Again, because so many people are about their magic morning. That is adorable. And I love if you can do that. But if you, I think if you have children, you're like, I don't know about this being magic or miracle, but it's a morning. So we're going to try to make it good. So yeah. That's great. That's great. Um, another one who, who is like just totally switching gears. Who is somebody who's inspiring to you and why? Yeah, well, she's going to be here soon in my office. Erin Barbie, who some people know from the Inspiration Lab, she's been our events manager, and um, she is a single mom of a child with special needs and has an incredible personal story of resilience. And just, she's so kind and tender and caring. Like, she's one of the most compassionate friends that I have. She never forgets anything. Um, she's an incredible host. Like, I don't understand when I go to her house, I'm like, you're the single mom with special needs child and she runs a business and she'll just have like tiny slivers of cucumber floating in the water. Like all these little nice things that also is a working mom. Like I've not had cucumber water since I was at a spa a decade ago. You know, it's like just these little, again, she's a detailed person and I think I connect with that, but I appreciate that she stayed up late to cut little slivers of cucumber to make it special for other people. You know, it's like, that's the kind mm -hmm. of person she is. But on my hardest days, I always think like as hard as things are with Oliver, I have Andrew, I have a partner, like we are doing it together and to do it alone, it to me is the ultimate like inspiration. That's, that's really amazing. I think if there's one thing, only one, although I've gotten a lot, if there's one thing that I've gotten out of just uh, t getting the, the chance to talk to you today, it's that just putting on a pair of glasses that sees all of the little God winks, all of the little blessings, the little things that can just totally shift your life around. And I have seen so much in all of these questions, but that's definitely one of them is just picking up on all the little things with a grateful heart. My last question is I, I wanted to just ask from where you are today, what advice would you give to your early 20s self? Yeah, I, was, I, I like this question. So I was thinking the frustration that I was feeling in my work environments back then, I didn't know this, but I was in the wrong work environment. So if you feel held back and frustrated, like you're constantly being like thwarted or I, for me, I just felt like I was like in trying to be in fifth gear and I was constantly been put down in first gear. And I was like, ah, I want to go faster, more aggressively. I want to try more things, whatever. And so as a social worker, I worked in nonprofits where I had to go through the board, the director, budgets, all this other stuff. When I got into real estate, there is none of that. If you want to go to a conference, you pay for, I mean, you have to pay for it, but you can go. There's literally no one to ask basically about much of anything. And that's when I finally clicked for me, even as a stay at home mom, I remember feeling a sense of frustration. I was like, I should like this more. 
but I really didn't like it. I was frankly bored quite a bit and I tried to grow a garden and all my friends were like posting pictures of tomatoes and like every morning I would go out and it would barely be any bigger. And I was like, are you kidding? This takes forever. Like I don't like gardening. And then I would see a snake and then I just let the whole thing die because I hate snakes. I mean, it was just like me again, trying to be someone I wasn't. And I was like putting on all these different clothes and they kind of, there were parts of it that fit like the stay at home mom part of like hosting people. I always loved that part, right? There were parts that fit. And, and certainly not being rushed around was really cool. Like not having to be a lot of places at a certain time. I thought that was really nice. And I felt like I was a more present mom in that way. Mm-hmm. Because if you want to tickle for two hours, you can. Like you mean the tickle monster for two hours because you know where to go. But man, when I got into real estate, like everything from like what you wore to how you interacted to the speed and the pace of it and to the kind of unlimited opportunities and, and ways in which you could create something, then it clicked for me. So I think if you're in your 20s and you're feeling this like sort of weird resistance where you're like, God, I just feel like I'm constantly butting up against a wall here, you might be an entrepreneur. You might need to do your own thing. And, and, I, and I, I don't know what the opposite feeling of that is. Like if you, I've heard, had people that work for me say, I don't have enough direction. Like that sometimes people need more boundaries, more boxes. They need to know what success looks like. And you need to be, you know, under a leadership that's more directive so that you understand sort of where you fit and how it works. But I think if you're in your twenties and you're feeling that, whether you've chosen to be a stay at home mom or you're, I don't even know, working in the family business that maybe doesn't really fit you, but you feel got this like pressure to do it. When you're in the right job, sort of like the right relationship, it just clicks. It shouldn't have all that tension, at least with pacing and with the ideas that you have. I mean, there's always tension in a job, but does that make sense? Absolutely. That's a really good idea. And I'm in my twenties, so I'm going to take your advice. Yeah. I think I like a better analogy would be like, if you feel like there's a lid on your career, like you keep hitting a lid where you're trying to pop out, there is a lid and you should pull it off somehow. I don't know how, but when you get into a career with no lid, no ceiling, you know, no limitations for you, whatever that means, uh, you'll, it'll click. And it's saddest. I mean, if you're going to work this hard, which most of us are working hard, I think you should love what you do. Um, if you want to get paid $40,000 a year and go to a job and leave it at the job and that's beautiful and life-giving for you, fantastic. I think that's awesome too. You just need to know what that life-giving thing is and go after it because if you're not feeling it, I just kept thinking when I was in my 20s, I'd grow into it. No, you don't grow into that. That's like That would be like me turning into a type B person, which ain't happening anytime soon. <laughs> it's like finding where you click. And how in the world do most people end up in the right career the first time they try? Mm-hmm. I mean, you never tried it before, right? So some of it is, and, and, you know, you and I think God didn't go to school to be like dentist or doctors. Cause what if you get up in that job and you don't like it? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. tough because you've now, you know, committed so much of your life. So that's why I think trying on different things. And the only thing that I did that's close to this job now that felt this way is I was a manager for someone who was starting up a mental health practice. And I loved the speed, the pace, all the different things that I was doing. I liked dressing up to go to work. I liked being in the office. And so there were, I remember thinking of that job, hmm, okay, there are pieces of this I didn't even know that I would like because I never got to try it, you know? Yeah, that's very, very sound advice. Stephanie, I just really appreciate your time today very, very, very much. I know that you're extremely busy, but this is going to be beyond blessing to anybody who listens. So thank you. Thank you. Have a good one. You too.
Thanks so much for joining me on the Best You Can Be Leadership Podcast. If you are as excited as I am about diving into our potential and stepping into the very best versions of ourselves, then follow me on Instagram at bestyoucanbe and don't be afraid to send me a message. You can also visit bestyoucanbe.com and fill out a contact me form. I can't wait to meet you. In this episode, I've stuck my hand out to introduce myself to you, but go ahead and do the same for me. Tell me who you are, what your story is, and what you would like to see most in lessons to apply to your leadership experiences. Until next episode, keep going, keep growing, and keep becoming the best you can be. Bye.